Hello and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. This week, Film Inquiry staff writer Lee Jutton will be joining later in the podcast to talk about small acts. Uh, this is basically, you know what? I'm just going to go all, all, all out and say uh, a collection of movies. Yes, movies um, available on Amazon Prime from uh, director Steve McQueen, uh, who is best known for films like 12 Years a Slave, Shame, and Widows. Um, basically, it's a collection of pictures about the West Indian community in London. Uh, the first of these films, Mangrove, is available to watch now. Uh, would highly recommend it. I think it's one of the best things I've seen so far this year. And Lee reviewed two of the other um, films in this series that premiered at the New York Film Festival. Um, so I, this conversation with her, I think, was a great opportunity to not just talk about the episode that you or the sorry, the movie that because all of these are really movies uh, that you can watch right now, but also get an idea for what's coming next in this very exciting series from a pretty major filmmaker. And I think as soon as you kind of fire it up, you'll see that this is, you know, this is a pretty big, hefty artistic statement um, and is, is I, I think, a cut above uh, a lot of the stuff you're going to see this year. But before we get to that conversation, huge news. Wonder Woman 1984 will be arriving on Christmas Day. You can see it in a theater or if you're like me and you don't want to go to a movie theater because there's, you know, a pandemic going on, uh, you will be able to watch it through HBO Max. And unlike Disney's... Uh, streaming release of mulan uh from a few months ago that we talked about on this podcast this will just be part of your membership if you have hbo max you will be able to have I, I believe it is a a 30 day window to watch the movie um while it is in theaters if you choose to um and after that the movie will presumably be going to vod but this is pretty giant seismic news um you know we've been I think kind of building to this point for a couple months, there've been a lot of movies that due to the virus were unable to come out and most of them have been postponed. However, there were a few such as trolls world tour or American pickle or <laughs> a movie that Mulan, which we talked about on the show or, um, you know, something probably a bit, uh, lesser, uh, the Robert Zemeckis remake of the witches, um, which is, quite awful if you haven't seen it i would not recommend but these were movies originally slated to come out in theaters and instead got pushed to streaming services another one uh palm springs a really fun andy samberg comedy that came out over the summer and so we've been kind of building to this spot but all of these movies i think have kind of smaller audiences um you know mulan was maybe that maybe was the closest to this kind of blockbuster um, and what Disney did with that movie was essentially make it a, a $30 surcharge onto your Disney Plus membership if you wanted to watch it. But what Warner Brothers is doing with the Wonder Woman sequel is different from that. It's not going to be an added surcharge. You're just going to be able to fire up your HBO Max on Christmas Day if you want to with your family 
and watch Wonder Woman 1984 in your home. And this is a big change to have a a giant blockbuster of this size that was presumably going to be making, I don't know, a billion dollars maybe at the box office and is a giant movie for Warner Brothers. This is quite a gamble. And depending how things shake out, this could be, I think, a turning point for what movie going is going to be like in the next few years. Um, We've obviously had tons of conversations on this show about how the coronavirus pandemic and how studios are responding to it is likely going to change the way we experience movies in the coming decade, probably. And I'm obviously excited to see the movie. It'll be great to have a big, fun blockbuster. On that same day, it should also be mentioned that Disney will be releasing the new Pixar movie, Soul, onto Disney Plus for no added surcharge. So I think as far as this show is concerned, you can expect uh, after the Christmas holidays to have a pretty jam-packed episode talking about two big movies that a lot of people will be able to watch on Christmas Day. But, you know, with this Wonder Woman thing, it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. You know, I think the downside to this could be this is kind of a big shot in the foot to movie theaters. And movie theaters across the globe are really struggling right now. And the idea of a big blockbuster movie like this premiering on a streaming service at the same time it's premiering in theaters potentially sets a dangerous precedent for the future of the theatrical experience. Now, I understand these are extreme circumstances. As I mentioned, I don't want to personally go to a movie theater. I'm beyond excited to be able to watch this in the comfort of my own home uh away from possibly being infected with coronavirus but this will have an effect this will likely have an effect on viewing habits and i think if this experiment by warner brothers is a massive success we could be seeing a future where movies get very brief kind of like month-long engagements in theaters and otherwise are just going to go straight to video on demand or go straight to a streaming service. And the in-home experience on a streaming service will probably be a bigger part of the theatrical experience. And it won't just be your Artur blank check projects or your small indie movies there, or even kind of like the mid-budget stuff that we've been seeing so far this year, stuff like a Trolls World Tour or a Palm Springs that maybe have a smaller, more specific audience. But if blockbusters start dropping on streaming services, I think we'll start to see people's viewing habits change in really drastic ways. And to some extent, I think this is a direction we were already heading. In other ways, I think this is just accelerating that 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 process that we were already heading towards. Um, you know, there's still some exceptions to the rule. Uh, a few weeks ago, there were reports that Apple was trying to purchase the new James Bond movie to debut as uh, on their Apple TV Plus platform. The the Broccoli family, um, I guess, politely refused, uh, still holding out hope that movie theaters will be back open and people will be flocking to hopefully see a new James Bond movie sometime in the spring. 
you know, we'll see how that goes. Um, as for right now, like I said, you could definitely anticipate us talking about that movie after Christmas, as well as following the eventual fallout, depending on how well this experiment by Warner Brothers goes. But for right now, uh, please enjoy a conversation with Lee Jutton about uh, not just Mangrove, the new Steve McQueen movie uh, available on Amazon Prime this weekend, but the the kind of larger um, anthology film series that this is a part of called um, Small Axe, which uh, I, I think will be uh, one of the best things you probably see in the, the coming month. All right, I want to welcome to the podcast this week, uh, Film Inquiry writer, uh, Lee Jutton. Hello. Lee, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast this week. Of course, I'm, I'm excited. This is my first time doing one of the Film Inquiry podcasts, so I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, um, so you wrote about uh, two of Steve McQueen's small acts movies episodes what 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 are you calling these because i've even like describing this project to people have been sort of like i don't know i think like it's they have it like arranged on amazon as a series but it's basically like a collection of separate movies it seems like these feel like their own kind of um enclosed stories that are sort of tied in as a collection but really feel like their own singular works in of themselves i i know you have seen more episodes i have so you know maybe kind of like what how are you sort of thinking about this entire experience that'll kind of unfold over the next couple weeks sure so um i've seen three of the five films in uh the small axe anthology um i saw those when they were screening at the new york film festival this past year um And I would say, in my mind, I definitely think of them as individual feature films. Um, They are all loosely connected. They all take place around the same time period, um, showcasing uh, West Indian British life in London in the middle of the 20th century. Um, But they all tell different stories, um, and they all stand on their own as individual feature films. You can watch any one of them without having seen the others. And it doesn't matter. You don't need to have seen the others to appreciate them. Um, When you do watch more than one of them, you do get this really full sense of what Steve McQueen has accomplished here. Um, It's Mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. You can tell it's a huge passion project for him, something that highlights um, many stories familiar from his childhood and things that, you know, he experienced growing up. yeah, so I definitely think of them as individual feature films. Well, let's talk about the first one that went up today, um, it's, which is called Mangrove, um, and basically tells the story of this um, court trial that happened in the UK during the 1970s, basically around police disturbances in this one um neighborhood of i i believe they they actually said it's um it's the notting hill neighborhood which feels funny to think about because i like i know most people's reference to that is the like delightfully hugh grant um julia roberts rom-com which is like a much more kind of and now notting hill is a much more like gentrified neighborhood but Mm -hmm. really was sort of a, a a pillar for um this kind of west indian community um and uh, what what were your thoughts on this first episode? Because I found it 
pretty breathtaking and was really impressed by it. And this is maybe going to be a bit of a weird comparison. And I don't usually like to kind of like, you know, pair two movies against each other in a fight, but it was interesting watching this a couple weeks after doing an episode on um, trial of the Chicago seven, the the Sorkin movie on this show. Mm -hmm. And kind of feeling you know in that episode i think we talked a lot about the strengths of that movie versus maybe some of the the filmmaking weakness and sorkin's strength as a writer versus not maybe like filmmaking kind of the visual language of filmmaking not being um yeah quite his strong suit and then watching this and just being like man like <laughs> i feel like i'm in like control of sort of a master filmmaker and just like the difference in emotion and style of just someone like McQueen, who is such a, has such a formal command over mm -hmm. the medium and down to uh, how long he'll hold a shot and the camera movements and the, the cutting in particular sequences. Um, what, what did you think of uh, this, this first film, I guess, in the, the anthology? So it's interesting because, um, like you said, Mangrove is the first one that's being um, aired, but it was not the first one that screened at the New York Film Festival. Um, I saw. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the first one I saw was Lovers Rock, which we can talk about, you know, a little more later. Um, it's Lovers Rock is tonally very different. It is the only one I believe of the small axe films that is not a strict nonfiction story. It tells a story that is based in a very real you know, situation, but the characters are all fictional. Um, okay. And it's much, I would say, much lighter than um, the other two that I saw. It has dark moments, yes, um, that McQueen, as you said, you know, he, he handles things masterfully. But to go from watching that film to then watching Mangrove um, was a pretty big tonal shift. Um, I do think Mangrove, of the three I saw, is in many ways, the most powerful. Um, mm -hmm. To say it was my favorite, that would probably be Lover's Rock. Um, but Mangrove is a really powerful film. Um, the way it sort of, you know, from an American perspective, the way it peels back, um, you know, a little bit of history for for, for us. Yeah, I, I would say this is like a, an incident, even kind of compared to like, you know... <laughs> Well, I'll probably break my own rules and just be comparing this to the Sorkin movie because because that is just so fresh in my mind and what I was thinking about the entire time. But, you know, th th this story in Mangrove being something that as someone who grew up here in the States, I was totally unaware of this incident, totally unaware of the the history and context of this community in the UK right. and this particular incident. And and so it it. it there was this sort of fascination of, and I think part of what I love so much about the movie is the, the specificity to that community and to this story that I, I think as someone who is completely unfamiliar with it was, was kind of getting the doors flung open and kind of walking through this entire world and entire experience that was just totally foreign to me. Right. And from what I can gather, um, I I um, was able to tune into Steve McQueen's press conference for Lovers Rock at the New York Film Festival, which was uh, super compelling. Um, he um, he knows that people haven't heard these stories before. That is why he wants mm -hmm. them. Um, 
you know, he grew up in this world. This world is a very specific thing to him and it's very important to him. And it's very important to other um, black Londoners and people of West Indian descent. Um, he knows, you know, that, you know, so many period pieces tell the same stories over and over again um, from history. Mm -hmm. And they're usually white stories um, because, you know, white filmmakers and white storytellers have had the control. Um, so what Steve McQueen does with all the small acts films and especially Mangrove is give us period pieces focusing on important moments in black history, um, giving us a chance to see a different perspective, not the white perspective that we've seen on these events from the past so many times before. Um, and I think that's great. And uh, the fact that Mangrove also feels very timely in regards to how we've been talking about police brutality here mm -hmm. in the United States, but also around the world, um, adds to that. You're seeing how endemic of a problem it is, not just today and not just in the United States, but for years upon years and across oceans. Yeah, and I think another thing that really stood out to me ab ab about the movie is, and in, I think about it similarly in the context of uh, probably, I'd, I'd say, the most well-known of McQueen's previous projects, which is the, the Oscar-winning film 12 Years a Slave. Mm -hmm. And I think both the story of that, from a sort of contrarian standpoint, not necessarily my own opinion, but the contrarian take you could, ta you could have against that movie and mangrove is sort of as these kind of uh oscar bait message movies but i think that mcqueen finds something more deeper and nuanced and i think with mangrove unlike something like trial of the chicago seven which is is basically all about its politics and all about sort of standing on the soapbox and proclaiming its politics i think mcqueen's much more interested in not just drawing these connections between stuff like police brutality that's happening now and has always been happening in these communities, but really sort of immersing you in what it is like to live in the state of mind where you're just trying to, you're just trying to carve out your space. You just want your own sort of businesses, your own neighborhood and your own way of life. And to just sort of like, get by you know just like have yes. a family have a job have friends just sort of like enjoy life but there is this system around you that is just constantly um permeating your world and preventing you from just obtaining that kind of simple slice of life pleasures and what it is like to live in a community where that kind of oppression just is such a part of kind of daily life and the, the strength and the resilience to kind of just push back against it. And, but facing this kind of like ominous overarching system that seems so larger than you that you, you can't imagine how you can just kind of like continue. But I, I, again, like just persistence was just the thing that kind right. of stuck out in my mind and the idea of yeah. this community that, you, you know, one of the the central figures in the story is a man who's just trying to run a restaurant, which right. is and just like, I just want to like have this business to my own and be this place in the community where people can come and interact with each other and have a great meal. But I'm constantly being raided by police officers because of these sort of like racial pre prejudice ideas about like, I'm, 
I clearly must be up to something no good. I'm either running prostitutes out of here or running drugs or running illegal gambling. And so they just keep raiding my restaurant. And just that idea of trying to get by, just trying to live a normal life, but the system mm-hmm. is so messed up that it it prevents you from doing that. And kind of the frustration in these communities of like, we just can't live normal lives because th- this outside system is constantly intruding on us and preventing us from doing that. Right. I think you see um, throughout the small acts movies that um, you see what it's like to live in a place and to create a life in a place where you are reminded every single day that there are people who do not want you there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there are scenes in these films of, you know, people just mind their own business walking to work and they're walking by walls splattered with, you know, racist epithets. Um, They, they have issues with, you know, the law, but they cannot call the authorities to help them. They cannot, rely on the system that is supposed to be there to help them because the system is the one that is victimizing them. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is, that is front and center in all of these films. Um, What I found the most interesting about um, the main character of Mangrove, Frank Crishlow, who owns the Mangrove restaurant, who, you know, is, is a real person. um, Yes. Most interesting about the way his character is portrayed in the film is that he, like you said, he just wants to run his business he just wants this to be a place for the community. He does not see himself as a political revolutionary. He mm-hmm. just wants to be able to have a place where people from the West Indian community can come. They can sit, they can eat their food and feel as though they are at home and talk of each other and feel safe. Um, now, the fact that his restaurant represents that kind of safe space is why it becomes um, a meeting place for, you know, the political radicals of the community and because it exists, it also then becomes a lightning rod for the police. Um, mm-hmm. So he is sort of forced into a situation on both sides. He really did not, you know, plan on being in. And it's that situation that essentially revolutionizes him. But even then, as the, the way the film portrays him, up until the very end, he is, um, he still seems to, you know, think, oh, I got to just keep you know, keeping my head down, maybe I'll plead guilty in this case, you know, maybe mm-hmm. the only way to get out of it. And um, the scene in which he argues of the character um, played by Letitia Wright, um, leader of the British Black Panthers, who has a much more radical idea of arguing the case and actually winning it outright. Um, that moment where it highlighted the different ways that they, um, that they were approaching the situation, I thought was I thought it was really compelling and really powerful. Uh, not just because of the performances, but because it was a reminder that, you know, plenty of people don't see being revolutionary as, you know, one set thing, nor do they even see themselves as being revolutionary when they in fact right. are being that way. Yeah, and I also think there's such a profound sense of community in this first movie. And I love mcqueen's just sort of like indulgence and care to detail in the the smallest little things of just the this isn't a movie that is as much it is is about um you know people under this kind of like police (laughs) occupation almost and and a outside force sort of interfering in their lives i think mcqueen never passes up an opportunity to showcase the kind of the joy and yes. 
um, the collective unity in this community and just the attention, the detail of just the food they're eating, the the clothes they're wearing, the music that they are listening to. There, There's several sequences in here of people just dancing in the street or singing with each other. And that kind of, um, th- those were almost the most kind of uh, powerful scenes in the film for me of just mm-hmm. showing the resilience of this community and this way that they can kind of uplift each other and find joy and find this sort of um i I don't know this the spirit to kind of we need to keep living and we need to even when it seems like you know pardon my french we're fucked like even when it seems like that like there is no hope they have to make their own hope and and that kind of care to detail and sort of immersion in this this entire kind of small neighborhood of of london i I thought was to me the most kind of powerful aspect of the picture right because you know it's steve mcqueen's community this is his life these are things he remembers he knows if not the exact people involved in the situations he knows people who know them um Someone who was from outside this community could not have made that movie or any of the other movies in the small acts, um, mm-hmm. um, which just highlights the importance of having diverse storytellers, of having people like Steve McQueen, who, you know, can say, you know, I'm a black British man and I'm going to tell very distinctively black British stories. Um, it's funny to me what you said about, you know, the moments of joy and the moments of music and things like that and the attention to detail and how you really love that. Because let me tell you, you're going to love Lover's Rock then. Um, oh, awesome. Well, let's, let I would, I'd love to hear about the, the other two that you saw. Um, Cause like I said, I've only seen this first one. And, yes. Um, you, as you, are, as you, you mentioned, I've, to, go ahead. Yeah. I love this one. You're going to love it. Oh, um, awesome. It's, it's, it's quite short. Um, I believe it's only about like 70 to 80 minutes long. Um, it is, um, a story about a house party. Um, so as you can imagine from watching Mangrove, um, there were not many, you know, safe spaces out in the community, um, for, for black people in London. Um, so they, instead of going to clubs where they would risk, you know, getting, you know, thrown out, not being allowed in the first place, getting beat up by, you know, racist thugs or the police, um, Mm -hmm. they would have these big, house parties where, you know, DJ comes in, sets up, you know, a turntable and dance floor and everything. They've got lighting. They've got people cooking in the kitchen and selling food and beer. They've even got a man at the door um, to make sure that, you know, no troublemakers come in. And so it really is just a safe space in the West Indian community in London for them to just have a lovely night singing, dancing, um, falling in love, which we see happen over the course of Lover's Rock. Um, it follows um, two main characters, um, a young man and a young woman, who meet at the party. And you sort of see them in real time as they sort of, you know, interact with each other, start to, you know, feel, you know, certain ways about each other. Um, it's a beautiful depiction, I think, of the very, it's a very beautiful and authentic depiction of the sort of anxiety, but also excitement when you first meet someone that you're interested in, Mm -hmm. um, you sort of see them, you know, getting excited, but also a little nervous. Um, Just two beautiful lead performances. Um, And yeah, I mean, the the whole movie is essentially just like a 70 to 80 minute house party. Um, 
and it's just full of expressions of joy and of um, of happiness and peace. Um, there's a beautiful scene that I have seen many other writers say is the best film scene of the year, bar none. Um, oh wow! And I have to say, I find it difficult to disagree with them because it was an it's an incredibly powerful moment in which the music cuts out and the singers and dancers at the party just keep singing. I like acapella and they just go through the whole song. Uh, I believe McQueen said, you know, that wasn't necessarily the intention, but they kept the camera on and he just kept rolling and people are singing, they're stomping, they're moving. It's just, you feel like you were right there with them experiencing their joy and their happiness and the safety that they feel in this community. Um, it's just, it's an, it's an exhilarating movie um, for something that really sounds so simple as just being like basically a house party um, on film. Um, it's beautifully shot. The camera work, you know, is very mobile. It's following the dancers. It's like staying in rhythm with them. Um, the costumes, um, they're done by Jacqueline Duran, who, you know, is in, she's an Oscar winning uh, costume designer. Um, mm -hmm. They just, you really feel like you're there. Um, it's a beautiful little movie. Um, well, that's exciting to to hear also of just, you know, my own feelings about um, McQueen as a filmmaker, which, you know, we mentioned 12 Years a Slave earlier, um, three other movies he did. Uh, <laughs> you can have a, a pretty um, traumatizing double feature of oh, hunger yeah. and shame if you wanted to, <laughs> which, I, you know... I, you could probably lump 12 Years a Slave in with and mate. That's kind of, I think of as McQueen's sort of trilogy of kind of the human body suffering. Um, Cause hunger <laughs> that's, is that's pretty legitimate. It's a, uh, it's like yeah. a trauma. And I, and I know, you know, I, I love, I think 12 Years a Slave is a very powerful movie. Um, You know, I, I understand some of the reservations that I've heard from a, a few other critics. I know of, finding him such a an incredible visual filmmaker and it has this very commanding formal approach and sometimes um you know i those first three movies are, are i don't think it's you know they're difficult to get through like i've probably only seen those movies once they are yeah. very very tough sits same here um and i almost enjoy part of the thrill i had in his fourth movie the the crime movie widows from a couple of years ago which yes. you've not seen is super super underrated i've like that was one of my favorite movies from a couple of years ago yeah it's a I it's a, it's a super fun film it was it was nice after seeing you know the the intense trauma of his previous films to see him you know th that film is still dark but it has right it, it has it's a little less um intense than than the others yeah, it's it's him kind of letting his his lending his technical expertise to a genre movie. And as someone who loves like Michael Mann crime thrillers, I just sort of ate it up. And so it's exciting to hear you mention Lovers Rock as kind of giving him the opportunity to kind of flex his filmmaking style a little bit and just do kind of this big fun party movie. And I don't know that that sounds that's just so appealing to me and i'm really excited to see that one now as someone who thinks he is a filmmaker who has kind of the the technical expertise and the eye and the vision to kind of deliver mm -hmm. all of this cinematic pleasure um but then you know i, I as much as i kind of like his other work <laughs> there is something to be said to he is using that language to sort of um 
force you to face some of the the kind of greatest trauma that human beings can face. Right. Um, and and but, don't get me wrong. There are dark, there are some little moments of darkness in Lover's Rock too, but they are more on the periphery of the film than they are at the center. Um, there is a moment when one of the main characters leaves the party and starts to like, you know, walk down the street and, you know, some white guys start catcalling her and immediately make her feel unsafe. And she returns to the party. Um, mm-hmm. You know, little there's a there's a scene where uh, the the male lead encounters his boss. He works in a garage and he immediately code switches and stops talking in his West Indian accent and turns into like, you know, a very proper British man. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's those little moments where you're sort of reminded of why they need those spaces, why they need those safe spaces. You know, it's not all fun and games. There is a reason why they're all there. together, um, But. I think that, you know, he does a very nice job of um, of balancing uh, the sort of darkness on the periphery with the the light and the joy that is actually in the party. Well, let's maybe switch to, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about Red, White, and Blue, which I'm sure will get a lot of attention from people scrolling through their Amazon because it, it does star John Boyega. Yes. Um, as we mentioned, you know, Letitia Wright is in uh, the, the first film, Mangrove, and many people will likely recognize her from Black Panther. Um, but yeah, let's let's hear about Red, White, and Blue, um, which you saw at the New York Film Festival as well. Yes. So Red, White, and Blue um, was the third of the three films that I saw at the New York Film Festival. There are, of course, two more, which I am dying to see, but I've, of course, not seen yet. Um, Red, White, and Blue is interesting. To me, it felt like it was the most difficult film. Um, It tells the most difficult story. Um, Okay. Reasons I was the least emotional. I don't want to say the least emotionally invested in it, but um, it has a much more difficult sell. So, um, whereas Mangrove highlights, you know, the brutality of the police, um, the police are the enemy in that film. Mm -hmm. Um, like there's just no bones about it. They are the enemy. Um, in red, white, and blue, the film centers on a real life character, uh, Leroy Logan. Um, he was a scientist who was going to get into, um, crime scene investigation stuff and was convinced that he should just become a cop. Um, because everyone was aware that the uh, Metropolitan Police had a race problem. They were, the white white cops were committing racist crimes all over the place. Um, and people are saying, you know, you are, the people were telling this, this man, Leroy Logan, you know, you're like the ideal candidate for this because, you know, you know, all sorts of like, you know, dog whistles come up here, but, you know, like you're so well-spoken and educated. Mm-hmm. Um, like you'll be the perfect crossover between the two communities. You'll show the white police that a black man can make good. And you'll show the black community that not all police are the enemy. Some of them can look like you. Um, so he does become a cop. Um, and, you know, from there, it's just, it's a struggle for him because, you know, his fellow police officers treat him like garbage. They're just outright racist to him. They scrawl racial epithets on his locker. They don't send them back up when he needs it. Um, the black community, many of them see him as a traitor, um, in particular, his own father, who had been subject to police violence in the past and can't imagine why his son would want to be one. Um, so so it, it's it's hard because, you know, you can you can see both sides of it. You can see, like, I mean, I don't want to get too much into, you know, my own politics here. But as someone who, you know, doesn't doesn't have a glowing opinion of the police, you know. Mm-hmm. 
seeing him try to essentially reform the police from the inside, I'm just like, I just, I think you're fighting a losing battle there, to be quite frank. Um, but, <laughs> be, but those complexities and those mixed feelings that it made me have were part of, I think, though, why it is a good film. Um, you know, it, it shows that things are not necessarily clean cut. It shows that, you know, people can try to do something and maybe it doesn't quite pan out, but maybe they deserve credit for trying anyways, which is how I sort of felt coming out of it. Like I said, Leroy Logan is a real person. I believe he is now retired, but he worked in the Metropolitan Police for decades. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't scare him off. He, he kept trying. Um, but the film is the film. So the films can be a tough watch. Um, John Boyega is brilliant in it. Um, I mean, he's anyone who's seen him in anything, um, whether it be, you know, Star Wars or Attack the Block from earlier in his career, um, can just, he's a great actor. Um, and he has charisma to spare. And he really, he really does that here. Um, it's, it's a wonderful performance. You really, um, you really have great empathy for him. Even if, you know, like I said, you are someone who is not really empathetic for cops <laughs> like myself. Um, he, yeah. And I think he, you know, him as an actor, he's someone that like, I remember it probably wasn't attack the block. I probably saw that like after the, that first star Wars movie he was in came out, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I remember seeing him in force awakens and was just like, that's Will Smith. Like, or like, you know, that, that guy's a movie star and I've been a little disappointed. And I, you know, I think he has come out a lot in interviews and talked about some of his frustrations working on those star Wars movies mm -hmm. and not kind of not being able to sort of develop into the kind of movie star that he would wish. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see kind of what he gets to do now that he is kind of out of that universe yeah. and doesn't seem to have any interest in coming back. And he yeah. seems like someone who is very politically minded and was very involved with um, a lot of the, the UK protests over the yeah. summer around George Floyd's death. And I don't know, I'm, I'm really fascinated to, to watch him. Yeah. How his He's, career as a movie star is going to blossom in the next few years. Cause yeah. I, like you, I, like I you said, you see him in star Wars. He is definitely a natural movie star. Like you want to watch mm -hmm. You care about him immediately. Um, and you feel that way watching him in this film, too. Um, what are really powerful to me are scenes like, you know, he just he refuses to back down. You know, someone scrawls a racial epithet on his locker and his response is to scream at them. You know, next time, say it to my face like you're a cop mm -hmm. just trying to, like, you know, write this. And when they refuse to send him back up at one point, he comes in and he yells at them like he does not, you know, back down. He doesn't try to play the nice guy, which you know, I think is what all of these guys thought that he, all of these white cops thought he was going to do. He's like, no, I am here to make change. I am here to mm -hmm. change you, the police, as much as I am here to change my community's idea of the police, because my community's idea of the police will not change until you actually change. Um, right. So yeah, it's a very interesting film. Um, John Boyega, like I said, it's just, it's all about him. Like, you know, he's, he's the star. You just want to watch him. Um, it's, it's, it's great. Well, what what do you think kind of I I've been thinking a lot about, you know, the idea that McQueen kind of had to to go to Amazon and go through the BBC, I think to yes. get this series made and I I, <laughs> I was thinking so much watching this like maybe I think because of the blurring of the line with streaming and VOD this year of th this idea that 
I don't, yeah. I don't even know what a movie is anymore. <laughs> right. Like what, it's, what's it the kind confusing. of formal qualifying criteria is for it. But I, uh, what do you think of this idea that McQueen, who seemed like such a, a kind of profound, big sort of notable artist so early in his career and now seems to be moving to these kind of streaming channels. I mean, this is kind of the apocalyptic idea mm-hmm. I have in mind of like, right. I, I mean, I'm glad mean. he made this, but like I want, and I know these are, we've basically both you and I have landed on. This is a collection of movies, which is all the more incredible that he got them made, but being a little deflated of like, man, I, I hope he's not another one of these directors. Like, you know, David Fincher, someone we're going to talk about on this this podcast series in a couple of weeks when Mank comes out, but yeah, has gotten sucked into the the streaming platforms is just sort of like, I don't know, I'm not going to get the money to make movies I want to make. So I'm going to go to people who are going to give me the money and all power to Steve McQueen. I'm glad he was able to do this right. major accomplishment. But and, uh, are you with me of sort of feeling a, a little bit deflated of hoping that he is not one of these great film artists that we're just going to like is not going to be able to make the kind of has realized he's not going to be able to make the kind of stuff he wants to make and now has to go to these other channels and other mediums that i'm glad exist but like i said it it is a little scary that someone of his stature cannot get this made otherwise and the pandemic hasn't helped that right like i think we're gonna see more and more of that now because of the fact that just movies aren't gonna be opening in theater so instead of you know going to a major studio and hoping it might get released why not just go to a streaming service and go straight to right but you know i think it goes a couple ways right because like I'm of you, like I want the, you know, big theatrical experience to live on. I love going to the movies. I love going to like, you know, a big um, statement event film done by a great artist like a David Fincher or a Steve McQueen on opening night in theaters. Um, but when it comes down to it, one of the reason why the streaming services are becoming appealing to these to these filmmakers is because, you know, they have the money because they're mm-hmm. in it. And they also, they want the street cred. They want the artistic credibility. Um, Netflix still wants that best picture Oscar, right? Amazon, I'm sure would love to, you know, be able to say they've got movies. I mean, well, Amazon, I believe has been behind some best picture nominees. I believe they were behind um, Manchester by the Sea, I know a few years ago. Yes. Theaters, Amazon Studios, yes. So they, um, they want the prestige. They want to make themselves be a destination for people who want to watch those kinds of films. They want to win the awards that say that they are a destination for those kinds of films and those kinds of artists and then draw in even more of those artists. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird because, um, yeah, part of you is just like, well, why aren't, why isn't a big studio like giving Steve McQueen the money to make five wonderful feature films about black British life. Um, I'd rather Amazon do it than no one do it. Um, and I think right. we're going to see more and more in the future that it is going to be the Amazons and the Netflixes more so than the traditional studios. Um, and, you know, like you said, there's good and bad to that, right? Like I'd rather see the content. I don't want to say content because then I really sound like I'm like falling into that <laughs> evil, evil street, modern streaming, uh, mindset. But, um, I'd rather be able to get the films than on streaming than not get them at all when it comes down to it. Um, it's like, you know, like if Alfonso Cuaron was not going to be able to get Roma funded, 
without Netflix money, then I'm glad Netflix gave him the money. Like if that's the way it has to be, then then I'm glad. Uh, the the problem I have, not to go a little too far off topic, is I think that with a lot of these streaming services, they scoop up a lot of um, smaller Indian international stuff as well, and they don't mm-hmm. promote that well enough. Um, and they sort of yes. In a way that I think that if these films were opening on the art house circuit, they would actually get more attention. Um, like my big problem was um, I loved Atlantics. Uh, that was one of my favorite movies um, from like the from like last year. Um, Netflix buried that movie. They you went on the Netflix home. Oh yeah. All you saw was The Irishman, and you saw Marriage Story, and you saw you know the big name directors that you know. But they don't need that kind of crazy promotion. Like, we know them. We know they're there. Someone like Maddie Diop and Atlantics could have really used that boost. Netflix could have been on the main page being like, look at this. We have this great artist. She's an up-and-coming filmmaker. This is a beautiful film. It's been submitted for Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. Like, watch this movie. And I feel like more often than not, they scoop up those films to give them the artistic credibility and then don't actually do anything with them. Or they do already do the wrong thing with them, like we saw of all the you know controversy with cuties. Um, oh gosh! <laughs> so like I think I it's a I good don't know destiny- we got time to unpack that. That nah, nah. That um, we, contro- we and we don't we that don't need whole to. BS controversy. <laughs> we don't and we don't need to. But um, yeah. the point is, is that I think Netflix and Amazon and things are a great destination, I guess, for for artists who have already built up a name for themselves and can have mm-hmm. that on their own. If I was like an up and coming artist, I don't think I would want to to go there. Um, Lulu Wang said something about that regarding Netflix. I, I was just about to say. Promoting the farewell. Yeah. Thing. yeah. She was basically she... said that, you know, if she went with Netflix, it would be a Netflix film. And mm-hmm. by of Netflix, it is her film. Um, and, you know, you, people, you can say what you want about A24 not being very good at promoting their movies when it comes to Oscars, but they promote, but I mean, I think more people saw the farewell because of A24 promoting it on the indie circuit than they would have if it was buried on Netflix. Oh, totally. Well, Lee, thank you so much for uh, stopping by this week to talk small acts. Uh, If you're interested in watching, it's available. The first one that we talked about, Mangrove, is available to watch right now uh, on Amazon Prime. And I believe the other two that you mentioned are the next two episodes. So Amazon's going to be dropping one of these uh every friday so um i believe originally red white and blue was supposed to be the last one but it no longer is because i think some one of the other two took longer to finish than anticipated interesting okay well thank you again for for stopping by this week and uh we'll have to have you back sometime (laughs) of course thank you for having me